is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. American troops are to stay longer in Afghanistan as the security situation gets worse. Syria, Iranian troops and Russians launch new attacks on anti-Assad rebels. Trident, the Scottish nationalists say it again, it must go. Be in no doubt about this. The SNP stands against Trident today, tomorrow and always. Well, as SITREP has been predicting, American troops in Afghanistan are staying on for another year as the security situation deteriorates. President Obama has made the announcement today in Washington. From there, we can speak to Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Hello, Simon. What's he saying exactly? Well, I mean, this is the announcement that so many analysts had said for so long was ultimately inevitable. But it still comes as a surprise when President uh, Obama, the man who has characterized himself as the U.S. president who wanted to end two wars, confirms that he's actually not going to be able to leave the White House having done that. So the United States is going now to keep five and a half thousand troops in Afghanistan through to the end of 2016 or possibly early 2017 and there seems to be no question about the bulk of those forces now uh, withdrawing as had been the plan before President Obama leaves the White House for the last time. So this is a big day for the Obama administration because in terms of the president's legacy uh, it does really prevent him from being able to say that he's the man who ended two wars and it forces him to accept that the reality uh, of the security situation in Afghanistan is not what he or his policy planners had hoped. And for this extension, does he need Congress to back him? And can he make it go even longer than you're predicting? Well, uh, he certainly is going to be seeking congressional support for this. Uh, He doesn't actually require uh, congressional support because he's commander-in-chief and he can issue these orders, but he certainly would want to secure congressional support. And, of course, Republicans up on uh, Capitol Hill will all be saying, well, we told you so. We told you that your policy uh, of providing a fixed date for the withdrawal of forces from from Afghanistan was a huge mistake that would only play into the hands of America's enemies. He's also been under pressure as well from the Afghan government itself, which has accepted that its security forces are not performing the way that either the United States or the Afghan government would want. And so they have been urging the president not to pull everybody out. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is also here. Christopher, why do you think he's doing this? Well, look at the numbers to begin with. What he's doing is, is, um, is withdrawing... Uh, a supported brigade, 4,300 people. That's the first thing he's doing. Uh, also, there are some changes in the in the aircraft that he deployed in the region. And so what the Afghans uh, or the Afghan government's rather worried about is will the Afghan army still have close air support from the United States? He's doing it because, as we've seen, the Taliban is making the expected inroads uh, to all sorts of regions, including the North region, which they weren't expected to make such inroads. In other words, the Afghan army cannot cope, and it cannot, cannot cope without training, support, uh, and close air support that the Americans can, can, can give them. The generals were right. If we go now, 
We're going to leave them naked. And what he's doing partly is to try and give them some military clothing. We heard the Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, this week defending Britain's recent recent interventions overseas. And he said he sort of posed the question, what would have happened in Afghanistan without Western intervention? Taliban would still be ruling. Al-Qaeda would be thriving. Um, what exactly is the situation security-wise in the country at the moment, Christopher? Well, yes, I mean, nobody knows actually whether David Cameron's predictions were going to be right, that if we hadn't intervened, that Taliban uh, would be ruling Al-Qaeda thriving. Uh, the position at the moment is that Al-Qaeda is not thriving so much in in Afghanistan, but it is elsewhere, moved a huge operation down into the Gulf. So uh, when Al-Qaeda got onto the move, um, it went to the Gulf and created a problem el- elsewhere. Um, Taliban is still not ruling. That's the important thing to remember. Uh, it, these things take ages. When mm. you stop a war, you don't just tear up the tapestry of war. You you are left with 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 changes from both sides for perhaps a decade, two decades to come. Simon Marks, how are the American people responding to this prospect of American presence remaining in Afghanistan for longer than expected? Well, I think it's important to underscore, Kate, that the president's not making this announcement in a vacuum. He's making it uh, just as the U.S. presidential election campaign starts catching fire here. And so there is going, I think, to be, uh, over the course of the next 15 and 16 months, a vigorous public debate here uh, about the future of U.S. policy, not just towards Afghanistan, but, of course, also towards Syria, where the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, has been bedeviling Barack Obama uh, over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, And Republicans will want to hammer away at the idea that the Obama administration's foreign policy doctrine has been lacking, both in Afghanistan and in Syria. And this announcement gives fuel to their ability to fire in that direction. And it also creates huge problems for Hillary Clinton, who, as President Obama's former Secretary of State, must now decide to what extent she's going to uh, continue supporting or distancing herself from the president that she once served. All right, Simon Marks from Future Story News, thanks for your time today. Well, American and Russian defence chiefs have been talking about how they plan to avoid any collisions in the airspace over Syria. Uh, Christopher, the Russians are saying uh, this is going well. It's such an obvious thing to do, I suppose. Is Is it actually that difficult? It is difficult. On paper, it isn't. What you do, you say, are we in agreement that we will tell each other uh, in good good form uh, what our operations are going to be. Once we can agree that, you can actually sort of post it up on each other's walls almost mm. and say we will be And both fighting. sides are taking this very seriously. Yeah. They're being very responsible about uh, it, aren't they? Because, yes, there was the what uh, a, just something like a two-kilometre near miss. Now, it doesn't. It sounds ages away, two, two kilometres, but not when you're flying sort of Mach 1.6 at mm. each other. And so, uh, in theory, so you've got uh, advance notice of uh, your operational programme, which will say, right, between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, for example, we'll be flying over this particular area, uh, zero, zero 007 area, for example. You will have identification friend or foe. You will have constant uh, warning to the other side, still flying, still flying, still flying. And also you will have the sort of visual thing which pilots are extremely good at. OK, we talk about the Americans and the Russians. What about the non-American air operation? going on? I think this is the most interesting part of it, um, in, in as much that you can say to the Americans and Russians, are, OK, you'll be grown up about this, but are the Russians going to tell, for example, the Israels, Israelis in the area 
uh, when they're going to be operating. Are they going to talk, uh, for example, oh, to the Turks? What is the answer to, uh, to this question? Talking to the Turks. In fact, it, they may not do. What they will rely on is the Americans in passing on information and having absolute control, command and control, let's say, of Turkish operations. And is that the case? Uh, not at the moment. It doesn't work very well. I mean, for example, about uh, 10 days ago, a Russian uh, aircraft, T-34, uh, went into Turkish airspace. Indeed. You've only got to get a twitchy pilot and you've got a, you've got a miscalculation. Well, earlier this week, our reporter James Hurst spoke to former NATO Secretary-General Lord Robertson about Syria. We're going to have to have pretty intensive diplomacy uh, if the Syrian issue is not going to become a much wider conflict with much wider ramifications. So we've now got, we've fallen into a situation where Russia has become engaged, I think unthinkingly, about the longer term. Um, and therefore the need for rapid diplomacy, intense diplomacy, back channels being used has never been more urgent. At the moment, we're seeing the manifestation of, uh, of a new phenomenon that we hadn't predicted, but we should have predicted. So unless we take action now um, to make sure that, that we, we've got a grip on it, then I think that the consequences are going to be pretty dire. Should we be seeing Britain extending its military action into Syria? Well, Britain should be involved diplomatically, and that's very important. And I worry very much about possible cuts to the form of his budget. After all, diplomacy is going to be of enormous concern. And, of course, I'm concerned about the strategic uh, and security defence review that is going to take place as well. Britain has got a big role in the world, diplomatically and militarily, and therefore we've got to be engaged at what level boots on the grounds and all that has got to be seen in the context of diplomacy and a possible failure of diplomacy. It shouldn't be the first line of, uh, of our reaction. Diplomacy has to be there first. So you sound like you're saying that you don't necessarily think there should be a, a, a vote in the Commons right now on military action? I think there should be a vote in the House of Commons and I think that the vote should be that the Royal Air Force should be able to hit targets in Syria. I believe that when the last vote was taken, and I believe it now. Uh, it's pointless us hitting targets purely in northern Iraq when the headquarters of ISIS is, is in Syria. If we're going to deal with this and nip it in the bud, if there is a possibility of that, you know, then we must bear the same burdens as the other members of the coalition team. Many, um, many in your in the Labour Party fear we will simply get dragged into another complex conflict with with no military victory. More than more than people in the Labour Party are worried that we might get sucked into a conflict. The problem is that since 2013, when the last vote was taken, the situation has got much worse. Um, and we are now facing the impact of it. The migration flows are coming directly from the fact that we didn't intervene at the right time with the right scale of military efforts. So the time has come now to add the military component to whatever diplomacy is going to be deployed. Diplomacy can be successful. It's much more successful when, when there is at least an element of force available to it.
And that was Lord Robertson talking to James Hurst at the Churchill 2015 Global Leaders event. Were you there, Christopher? Uh, no, I wasn't. Not one of them, actually, <laughs> at the moment. What do yes. you think about what he said there? Uh, two, two things. I mean, one, that he's been billed in that uh, thing, which is which was in the Churchill War Rooms, mm. uh, in, in just by the Foreign Office, is that, um, uh, is that Lord Robertson... Uh, is being billed as NATO, former NATO Secretary General. You've got to remember also, he was Defence Secretary, Indeed. a very fine Defence Secretary. He understands the problems of getting a military decision through Cabinet, through Parliament, and that, that was very, very clear there. He said England or the United Kingdom should be involved diplomatically, and therefore the vote in the Commons ought to go through, for example, that the RAF should get involved. He doesn't say in practical terms what level does the RAF get involved, what is the strategic uh, anxiety that brings the RAF, makes the RAF, because they're getting involved anyway by supplying Just remind us briefly where we're at with that vote on whether to, to bomb in Syria. Uh, at the moment, the Prime Minister has decided that it is not the right time to take it to the Commons because he's uncertain of winning. When he took it to the Commons last time, he was surprised by the fact that he was defeated, and he won't do that again. Well, James Hurst also spoke to Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, Hilary Benn. What Jeremy and I are saying today is that the Prime Minister should be straining every sinew to try and get a UN Security Council resolution, both to try and deal with the threat from ISIL Daesh which we know is, is real and present, and the RAF are currently flying in Iraq in support of the Iraqi government because ISIL Daesh have invaded their country, but also to, to deal with the other aspects of this terrible crisis that has seen half the population of Syria have to flee their homes, which is why we want more humanitarian aid, referring suspected war crimes to the International Criminal Court, a fair international agreement to provide shelter to refugees who fled, Safe zones, if it is possible to create them, it is very difficult, but there are 7 million people who are still in Syria who can't live where they were because it's so insecure and because of President Assad's barrel bombs. But ultimately, there has to be a political solution, and we need to do that through the United Nations. This reads, certainly to some people, as your list of conditions for supporting military action. Is, is this you setting out the terms under which you'd be prepared to support military action? No, this is us arguing that you need to look at the problem in the round. You can't just deal with one bit. If we're going to solve the Syrian civil war, we need a political agreement in the end. It's got to involve Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Russia, of course, and Iran, the United States, Europe, and all of the neighbouring states. On the specific question of potential British uh, participation in airstrikes in Syria, we have been consistent throughout, Jeremy and I, in saying we will make a judgment at the time as and when the government brings forward a proposition. What exactly are you proposing to do? What is the objective? What's the legal base? What is the attitude of other countries in the region, including the government of Iraq, because they asked us in to Syria, uh, to I Iraq a year ago. But is it part of a bigger plan? Because I think the British government needs to demonstrate to Parliament that they have a, a bigger plan to play their part in trying to bring this terrible conflict to an end. You can't look at individual bits in isolation. So, Christopher, what would a UN resolution do exactly? Uh, Russia, for example, was invited into help by the Syrian government, therefore doesn't need a uh, United Nations resolution to be there. A United Nations resolution 
uh, would give permission to the United Kingdom to take part uh, on the basis the United Nations had decided there was a humanitarian reason to do so and therefore you didn't have to be invited in by the government. That's the distinct difference between what a British policy is and a Russian policy is. Still to come, Israel is another Gaza war on the way and Trident, the SNP, say it must still go. Now, this time last week, NATO defence ministers gathered in Brussels, but was anything actually achieved? Christopher, was it? Well, what happened last week is the ministers uh, got there and they were all talking about Syria and what they were going to do, and Eastern Europe and Western Europe, etc., with the conflict certainly centred around the Ukraine. And and most of them made great sort of statements, which were uh, gained... Uh, some credibility because they were made at their own nationalities. So, for example, nobody else in NATO reported the fact that the Britons said we're going to send 100 guys into uh, mm. into Europe and eyeballing Putin's lot there. Um, and, in fact, that was it. A lot. Of, I've seen it so many times. They make these great statements, they go away, and it takes a long time to implement them. Sometimes there's no intention to implement mm. them either. NATO itself might be getting a bit bigger. It might. Hmm. Now, I'll tell you what this is about. Is, is it in NATO's interest to get bigger at this particular time, to send a message to Russia? Well, it depends on who it is. What's happening is uh, in Montenegro, which is part of the whole Balkans setup, uh, and Montenegro wants to join NATO. And Montenegro is a small country, 650,000 people. They are already in the European Union. Now, a lot of people say, yes, come and join NATO as well, which is why the ambassadors are meeting there, because they'll make their recommendations, which will be considered at the December meeting of NATO, and they could become members. But the important thing is this. Uh, well, uh, Djukanovic, uh, uh, Milo Djukanovic, which was the, who has been the, the prime minister there for donkey's years, uh, heads a, a government which is pretty corrupt and has a lot mm. of sort of uh, gang leaders uh, I- involved in the sort of government. So the Americans particularly are saying that we don't really want a person in NATO like that. But the biggest message is what Russia thinks. Yeah, what would they think of a former communist country being signed up? Just supposing you were working in the Kremlin. What would you think? What would I think? Uh, when you start to see, after, ni- after 1991, when, when, when communism more or less fell, Americans and NATO said, look, don't worry about this to the, to, the, to the Russians. We will not come plundering into Eastern Europe and taking over your former uh, 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 compatriots. That's exactly what has happened. We're in mm. Hungary, we're in Poland, etc. And Montenegro would be the other one that would go. And it's not that popular in, in Montenegro either, only by, only amongst the prime, prime Minister's office. Now, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has been making clear her party's opposition to Britain's nuclear deterrent. Be in no doubt about this. The SNP stands against Trident today, tomorrow and always. Well, she's been addressing the Scottish National Party's annual conference in Aberdeen, where she also had something to say about Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Friends, whether on the economy or Trident, or even the question of whether UK forces should take part in airstrikes on Syria, Labour is a party divided and in disarray. In fact, the only thing clear about Labour, and it becomes clearer by the day, is this. Labour is unreliable, unelectable and unable to stand up to the Tories. 
So what does this mean for Scotland and defence? Well, I'm joined now by Dr Phillips O'Brien from the University of Glasgow. Good to speak to you today. Um, It's clear the SNP want to get rid of Trident. We know that. How do they justify the jobs that would be lost? Well, actually, it's a fascinating thing. It's become such a a cardinal element of their policy that they're willing to probably take a local hit um, to keep their base energized. I mean, what the SNP seems to have done is taken so many voters from Labour, particularly left-wing voters from Labour, and they've migrated over to the SNP, and they're desperate to keep keep them in. Keep That's why the, there's a tax that you were hearing on the Labour Party. So what I think they're going to say is, okay, I'm trying, we will probably lose some votes in that area, in that area of Argyle, where actually they didn't do that well in the independence referendum, but we'll lose the votes in that area to try and keep those left-wing Labour voters in the SNP. And what power has the Scottish Parliament actually got when, when it comes to defence? Almost nothing. And that's why they can do it. I mean, yeah. they, they can sit there and say, we're against Trident, we're against Trident, we're against Trident, and because there's no repercussions. Uh, you know, it, it, what they're trying to do is appeal to a certain block of voters in Scotland to keep voting for them, knowing that actually you know, they won't get rid of Trident uh, and that they won't have to actually deal, at least in the short term, with any of the lot, job losses that would occur. And interesting that the debate over membership of NATO has mm-hmm. been ruled out at this conference. I, I th- one thing that happened in the independence referendum, which was very, very clear, is it was made known to the SNP by all of those they want to be friends with, be they the Danes the Norwegians, whatever, if you leave NATO, we are against Scottish independence. We will oppose it. We will look at it as a bad thing. So uh, I I think what they realized is that if Scotland was going to be accepted in the way they wanted to as an independent country, they had to stay in NATO. And so that they've just learned that lesson and they're not going to bring it up again. Or if they're going to bring it up again, it means they'll never think they're going to get independent. Aside from Trident, what else is the SNP saying about defence? Well, very little. That's the thing. There was a a whole lot of defence policy during the the, the, um, referendum itself. Since the referendums occurred, it's been all Trident. Sort of all the other issues have pretty much gone away. And uh, the focus is now on Trident Squarely. All right, Dr. Phillips O'Brien, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, I heard that they were against parts of the Armed Forces Bill. Can you shed any light on what, what, what they're picking holes in? Well, they're only, it, you know, it, 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 we come back to a very simple thing the problem for the SNP has. I mean, one, for, one example is Trident here. Don't forget, it's not a question of the SNP getting rid of Trident. It would have to be Scotland getting rid of Trident, mm. whoever rules Scotland. And it can't because uh, the SNP, or Scotland as it stands, has no decision-making process over its own defence policy. It can't do it when it's part no, of the UK. It, it, when it's part of the UK, it has no authority over defence and, and, and foreign affairs. As far as the rest of the concerned, it becomes the rest of the army, for example, and the navy... Uh, it becomes a lobbying uh, a factor. It doesn't. Some it, they can't do anything about anything. For example, reduction in in, in regiments, in, in reduction in facilities at places like Rosyth or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're just in Scotland yourself, and you, you you watch the SNP conference and you see everybody applauding when she says she's still against Trident. What do you get? What feeling do you get from the people in Scotland when you talk to them about these kind of issues? Um, they do they all, care? Well, I tell you, I was talking to Len, Len McCluskey, the, uh, who runs the Unite uh, uh, movement in the Union, uh, and he says, listen, forget the whole thing about Trident. Really? Trident is entirely, as you would expect, a, head of a, a very successful head of a uh, union. Trident is about jobs. And that's the most important thing. 7,000 to 8,000 permanent jobs. Forget the rest. And even if they became uh, independent, and even if then they said Trident must go, 
it'll still be there for another 20 years. And during that 20 years, there will be another debate on whether it was going to be renewed in the English Parliament. <laughs> Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Um, now to Israel, with all the chaos and slaughter in the Middle East at the moment, from Turkey to Yemen, we now have a return to the crisis between Israel and the Palestinians. In Israel, reserve policemen and militia have been called up as bombings and personal attacks take place on the country's streets. The Israeli Air Force has bombed Gaza. Well, Professor Rosemary Hollis of City University London joins us now. Professor Hollis, good to speak to you. Um, senior people in the region predicting a new Palestinian uprising, an intifada. Is that happening? It's probably better called, as the Palestinians are calling it, the Jerusalem Intifada. The nature of the violence is different from the previous two uprisings. Uh, there are not major bombings. Uh, in fact, the bombings happened in relation to Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And the Gaza Strip is not the heart of the problem this time. It's all in the streets of East Jerusalem, where Palestinians are mixed in with Jewish Israelis. And the security forces... How significant do you think this intifada is, then, the Jerusalem intifada? Well, it's an example of how individual Palestinians are taking matters into their own hands in the absence of a peace deal after 20 years of trying and in the absence of coherent and effective Palestinian leadership in the West Bank, which does not run to East Jerusalem. The Israelis forbid the Palestinians to have political offices in East Jerusalem. They regard it as part of Israel. They've annexed East Jerusalem, leaving the several thousand Palestinian citizens who've been there since before Israel captured East Jerusalem in 67, leaving them without full citizenship, simply Israeli ID papers. Mm. And they lack rights and the security crackdown now is attempting to search their houses, demolish the houses of Palestinian attackers on Jewish Israelis. Uh, it's a very frightening security situation for all concerned. And we only know a little bit of it mm. historically from Belfast. But you have no military solution when it's person to person, shop to shop, house to house. Where do you think this is heading? Because the, the airstrikes on Gaza, for example, remind us of the last Israeli attack resulting in thousands dead. It's virtual destruction. Do you think that's where we're heading? Well, if the Israelis resort to responding to some Hamas or uh, more likely IS provocations from the Gaza Strip, uh, this is in order to bomb the Gaza Strip, which is easier to do than to bomb the inside of a neighbourhood in East Jerusalem. It is not solving the problem. Christopher, given everything else that's going on in the region, the one thing you don't need at the moment is this kind of instability and the kind of effect it could have on other countries. I think it's what uh, it's the outsiders, or so-called outsiders, where the effect can be. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, Rosie's talking there about IS in Gaza. Uh, now, there are not that many people who would, who would wire up to IS actually operating in Gaza because we saw a televisual war before. It was about humanitarian proportions. There is also the truth of, of how people start saying, well, who are we supporting on this and where are the pressures coming, diplomatic pressures? Should it go to the United Nations? Should America in, in a, in, let's say, in a, an election year, how much should they get involved? How much authority do they have? Because I think what happened before showed that they had very little authority, partly because President Obama hadn't got involved in that. And then to the north... What is happening there, um, as we've got it at the moment, yeah. we, we, we have uh, the, the Iranians making all sorts of noises which upset people in, 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 in Israel, and you even have President, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu having to go to Moscow 
to see uh, uh, President Putin to talk about the situation in Syria. Professor Hollis, um, we understand that John Kerry is going to be heading out there to the area. What do you think he can do? Well, already from the State Department we've heard expressions of concern that the Israeli police tactics against ordinary citizens, Palestinian citizens of East Jerusalem, may be too severe and therefore may be counterproductive. We're talking about a problem of collective punishment here and revenge breeds revenge. What is particularly chilling is that we have on social media depictions of Palestinians killing Jewish Israelis mm. and urging them to die and vice versa. We have pictures on social media of Israeli undercutter policemen joining in a riot against mm. Israeli forces and then turning on their fellow demonstrators and shooting them. This is ugly, ugly, ugly and there is no way that you can reinforce security in a situation like that, there has to be talking about how do we live together. All right, Professor Rosemary Hollis, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher, just before uh, we came to do this programme today, we were looking at those pictures that the Iranians have released of this uh, secret missile bunker. Tell us about what we were looking at. Well, I tell you, you go down to Jerusalem, I'll tell you it's not a secret because they know exactly no, where it is. Okay. But the point a secret is, maybe no, to no, me. No, 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 the point is, uh, the uh, Iranians have been test firing uh, missiles. And everybody knows they're test firing, they, everybody's given a warning, and we've got uh, satellite pictures of this thing done. Now, you have to keep missiles somewhere. And the fact that they've got these, this catacomb of, of, of missile bases... And it looked bases, like straight out of a 007 film. It is straight out of that, and you can imagine the guy swinging in on a, on a micro-flight any time. But the <laughs> point being is the fact that they're showing them. Why would you show them now? You show them now because you're suddenly back into the international community after signing the deal on, on nuclear, nucle nuclear weapons, and also because you're about to help the Russians launch an attack in Aleppo. So this is saying, take us seriously, we're to be reckoned with. This is not saying, take us seriously, just saying, we are serious. Just like us. Christopher, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, uh, all of our guests who've been on the programme today. Don't forget, you can listen to this programme as a podcast. Just, learn, just search for iTunes for BFBS SITREP. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is 